awkward time right at the beginning of a live stream when you're by yourself, don't have anybody else to talk to. And there's just this dead space where you got to wait for people to show up. Don't really have anyone to say anything to just yet. Yet at the same time, people will watch this later and they'll be listening to this. Uh, let me let everybody know that I am live now. My email account tells me that there's a live stream going on my channel. So that's a good thing. Let me know. Drop a drop a comment in the live chat here if you can see me and hear me. Let me know how things look and sound. What's up, Well Emanuel? Yes, I hope work allows you to listen as well. This is going to be a quite an episode, I think. Um, I just went and listened to the first or to, to the next couple of sections here that hopefully we'll be able to read through today. And it's it's some some uh, some hot fire, so to speak. Father Seraphim really started getting going. And a lot of this is, I think some of this, the section that we read yesterday is um, a little more applicable to maybe the 17, 1800s in Western society. And what we're going to get into now is um, starting to extend more into the late 1800s and into the middle of the 1900s. Um, and a lot of it, all of it really is still relevant today. Cause like he said, all these different um, elements of nihilism are present in every generation in one form or fashion. But a lot of this stuff today that we're going to read is a lot more uh, directly applicable. Sound is sufficient. Great. Glad to have you back, Rigovich. Appreciate you. Let me get this tweet out here saying that I am live and... I'll come up with a few things here to vamp about until we really get going. Um, I gotta grab a link. Now, normally you don't really wanna tweet out links. Ah, no, don't, oops. Okay, good. I accidentally clicked the end stream button and fortunately it asks you if you wanna end the stream because that would've been really bad. Okay, live now. You don't really want to tweet out links to external sites. Here's a here's a, a a free tip for you if you are interested in trying to gain traction on Twitter. Tweeting links to other sites, period, but especially other social media sites, is a really good way to get um, your account throttled. Um, to not have your tweets shown to other people, sometimes it's kind of unavoidable. Like in this case. I kind of have to just tweet the link out so people can get to it if they want to. Um, but in general, you don't want to do that. Now, it's telling me on YouTube that an error occurred. And please try again later. I'm going to hope that the stream is still going. So let me check this real quick. Since I know it's going to take like 30 seconds for you guys to be able to um, let me know if you're still there. Yeah. Looks like it's still going fine. So I don't know why YouTube's giving me grief. All right. So. Uh, no, you can go ahead and you you can, you can tweet it. It's just take it into consideration. Don't like the LC people. They'll set up their their um, Twitter account and it'll like just tweet links to their blog or to their to their website or something. 
but they don't actually generate any content. They're not tweeting anything original or replying or interacting with people. You might as well just be firing those tweets off into the void. They're not doing anything for you. Just tweeting links to other sites. I mean, obviously Twitter, they want you, their entire algorithm is geared around getting you to stay on Twitter and interact on Twitter and consume content on Twitter. So they have a very strong incentive to not push you away from the platform. Uh, so if people are tweeting out links that would, if you click the link, it would take you away from the platform. Well, then Twitter's going to say, well, we're not going to show those tweets to people, which makes sense. Um, I did a, uh, you guys made me very happy. Those of you who voted, um, I, I tweeted a little poll before we went live and, uh, I asked what would be more interesting for the, the content of this live stream for me to give my tweet on Trump versus DeSantis. Cause that's kind of all the rage. That's what everyone's talking about right now on Twitter. And would it be more interesting for me to talk about that or to continue with the live reading of, of nihilism? And 77% of you guys voted for continuing the live reading of Father Seraphim Rose's nihilism. And I had a couple of people who don't have Twitter accounts who saw it, who just told me their vote, and they both voted for B as well. Um, so uh, I'm. Th this makes me happy because I... I mean, if you guys wanted to know my take on Trump and DeSantis, I would give it. And I'm sure at some point in the future, I'll wind up talking about it. But uh, the fact that you guys are digging this particular reading and that you want more of that, that is, um, that's cool. I'm, I'm very glad. I'm very glad to hear that. Um, all right. So uh, real quick, just uh, got to pay some bills here. So, so um, humor me as I throw up this really fancy graphic. Um, Fox and Sons Coffee, you guys have heard me talk about them. I did a, a, um, a ad read on them yesterday. And to me, this is more than just an ad read. Uh, it's it's uh, actually an example. It's like a, like a case in point uh, uh, living example of the kind of mentality that I, I, I think is going to be the true, um, one of the true antidotes to nihilism. And um, that is men who are taking an active role in not just um, exercising kingship in their own lives, but in training other young men to do the same, getting this cross-generational um, uh, training uh, spun back up again in a way that it used to, it used to be like, like apprenticeship used to be a very common model. It was like the, the model for people. If you, if you, uh, if your father was a farmer, then you would apprentice with your father and you'd become a farmer and you'd live your life as a farmer. Um, or if you had different skills or different opportunities, then you might, um, go apprentice yourself to, I don't know, like a, a Mason or a carpenter, or, um, you know, you might wind up, uh, learning to be a diplomat or you know, all kinds of different, different careers you could go into. But in all these cases, it generally wasn't like, we're going to send you to this special school where they're going to teach you, give you a broad base of education, quote unquote. And, um, and then you can just kind of pick what you want to do. No, you were like directly discipled and guided and, and you, you apprenticed under someone who knew what they were doing. Um, in this particular case, Stephen Fox, the founder of Fox and Sons, he wants to use this business to teach his sons how to build and run a business. And coffee is what he chose to, to um, put his mind to, to, to make the business about. 
because he has very fond memories of him drinking coffee with his own father. And uh, um, it was one of those things that just uh, was just always associated with really positive sentiments to him. And so it was an easy choice. And this is really good coffee. So he's he's exercising these these important principles and he's demonstrating these important principles of um, being of service to other people. Um, to his sons, where not only are they providing a value to someone, but they're providing a high quality value. They're producing a great product because you can go anywhere. You can get coffee. You can like go down to their store. You can go to McDonald's. You can go to Dunkin' Donuts. You can go wherever you want. You get some, you can get some coffee. You can even order. There's lots of different different um, podcast sponsors that um, have coffee. Is there? They've got some little coffee brand that's that's selling coffee that they're that they're advertising for. But Fox and Sons is different because. Number one, it's just really, really good coffee. It's amazing coffee. My wife keeps telling me how much she likes this coffee. And beyond that, you're not just investing in a great product that's really good for you. You're doing it in a way that's giving back to a family. And it's giving back to a couple of young boys who are learning the principles of brand building, business, um, having low time preference, investing in something of value for other people. Um, so you're able to to give to them in the same way that they're giving to you. And that's just something that I think is really cool. This is a part of what the King Pilled message is, um, is fathers taking an active role in training up your sons um, and providing value to your community. So um, I'm proud to, to uh, have them be a sponsor of this show. And I'd love it if you guys would show your support for this show and for the company by getting yourself some Fox and Sons coffee. You can use code KING at checkout when you go to foxandsons.com. That's F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use promo code KING. You'll get 18% off any order of $25 or more. And believe me, you'll want to order more than $25 worth of stuff because you're going to go through this coffee fast. It's very, very good. Um, and then shipping is always free on orders of $37.99 or more. So um, they've got me this, this nifty little graphic here that you can read if you're watching the video version of this. Um, so again, it's foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use promo code KING. All right, so let's get into this. Let me check on these, these uh, comments. More Father Seraphim Rose. All right, what's up, Marshall Forward? You're going to get yourself some more Father Seraphim Rose here. All right, so I actually tested this to make sure that uh, screen sharing was going to work. So let me pop it up here. All right. And I like to do this side by side here just because it's kind of weird to be this tiny little face way off in the distance. All right. So yesterday, um, the the subject that we um, really hit on, uh, we went through the first, uh, first passage of the book here um, where he describes the nihilist problem, gives a definition of nihilism that he largely uh, gets from Nietzsche. And, uh, and then he, he discusses the, the question of truth and nihilism's relationship to truth. And he has what he's identified as four stages of the nihilist dialectic. And yesterday we talked about stage one. We read through the section of stage one, which is liberalism. And if you didn't, if you haven't heard that, I'd recommend go back and listen to part one because it'll help make the stuff we read today make a lot more sense. Um, but basically the way that these, these stages of the nihilist dialectic work is as father Seraphim is laying out is essentially that you get the seed the where, where he really sees this process happening is the, the, the seed of nihilism 
um, was really implanted with liberalism. And then each of these stages is a reaction to and ostensible solution to the prior stage. Each one, these all these stages of nihilism exist in um, in relationship to each other. And what you find as you go through this, he'll, he, he elaborates on this quite a bit more as he's getting into steps two, three, and four here. Um, the, 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 it's like the, the seed of the first step is found in the second step. The second step is a reaction to the first, but it doesn't actually uh, countermand the first. It takes... Um, for granted some of the key precepts of the, the 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 prior step and tries to take them in a different direction. So it's it's kind of it's a dialectic that's kind of like a as dialectics are wont to be, it's kind of like a dialectic embedded within a dialectic embedded within a dialectic. Um and there's this pattern of reactionary thought going back and forth. And I'd kind of touched on this um a while back. I, I said something about how it seemed to me that the the response to Trump was the, the the popular culture response to Trump was a conservative response. You hear this in their 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 language where they would say things like he's you know he's violating our norms or he's going to take us back to um, these these prior eras. He's going to undo all of this progress that we've attained. So in in a sense, progressivism is actually a conservative movement because the belief in in an ever forward moving progress naturally assumes that you need to preserve the progress that brought you to this point. If we're going to build, if we're going to have further progress, then we need to build on our prior progress. So if you're starting to undermine our prior progress, then we need to conserve that prior progress so that we can get more progress on top of it. Um, so there's a there's a, a sense that I kind of have started identifying where progressivism is reactionary, and the reactionaries are almost more progressive than the progressives, because the reactionaries there's often a lot of of futurist overlap with reactionaries, and if you're someone who comes from, uh, some of the circles that I've I've kind of found myself in lately are um more perennialist, you know, Evola, Guanon, um, kind of the, the, uh, Nietzschean vitalist, the vitalism is the third step here. So, um, if you're coming from this more explicitly a proponent of fascism, which I don't, I don't pearl clutch over fascism. I've, you know, there's, there's, um, definite things about it that, uh, um, I don't think are necessarily bad, but if you're, um, if you are, are are an explicit enthusiast of um, uh, mid twentieth century European history, um, if you catch my drift, this this is probably going to be a little more. Um, you're going to take this as a little more of a rebuke. He kind of dunked a lot on Marxists um, in step one, and he he does a little more in step two. When he gets to step three, vitalism, he he starts going um, guns blazing at. Uh, uh, mustache man and his his uh, programs, um. But anyway, so there's a there's kind of a within the uh, the reactionary sphere, you get a lot of futurism. I mean, Moldbug would be the most um, probably most pertinent example of that. 
But Moldbug's vision for an ideal society is very uh, postmodern. It's post postmodern. It's very. It, it takes a very progressive look at the world. Um, and so that's kind of how these different stages relate to one another, where one of them, um, the, 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 the succeeding one looks at the preceding one and says, okay, you diagnose the problem properly, but you have the wrong solution. Or maybe you have the right solution, but you're looking at the problem in the wrong way. So they, they, they're like, I agree with part of what you, of, of your plan, but we disagree on this other part and that's the substance of it. And so that's how this dialectic begins, um, kind of just ping-ponging back and forth through history. So that's that's going to be a big part of, of what he's going to get into with this here today. Um, I'm getting a drink here real quick. Hopefully, hopefully my throat will last a little bit better here tonight. Um, th that is definitely what she said. Sorry. Um, hopefully my throat will, will handle this a little bit better here tonight. I was just trying so hard. I, I, I could have coughed three times as much as I did in yesterday's stream. Um, hopefully it'll be a little bit better, uh, today. Cause I'm, I'm feeling a little better. So, all right. Um, once again, for those of you who are not familiar with this, this format, basically this is intended to kind of be like an interactive audiobook. So I'm, I'm, live reading it as one would an audiobook, but I'm going to provide commentary here and there, um, try to clarify some of it. Some of this book was written in, I think the sixties. So, um, some of it is very, um, it's a little bit dense, I guess, is the way that, um, that, that father Seraphim liked to write was very, um, a lot, a lot of parenthetical thoughts contained within parenthetical thoughts, um, very much like the apostle Paul. Um, it so it uh sometimes it'll be like by the time i get to the end of the of the sentence i forgot what the beginning of the sentence was so i'm going to try to i'll try to parse out some of that and, and, and clarify it a little bit but um anyways let's get started so this is uh nihilist not nihilism the root of the revolution of the modern age by father seraphim rose um starting with step two of his um four-step process of the nihilist dialectic and step two here is realism um and i'll actually read the last paragraph of the prior section so liberalism is the first stage of the nihilist dialectic both because its own faith is empty and because this emptiness calls into being a yet more nihilist reaction a reaction that ironically proclaims even more loudly than liberalism its love of truth while carrying mankind one step farther on the path of error this reaction is the second stage of the nihilist dialectic realism part two realism the realism of which we speak a generic term which we understand as inclusive of the various forms of naturalism and positivism is in its simplest form the doctrine that was popularized precisely under the name of nihilism by turgenev in fathers and sons the figure of bazarov in that novel is the type of the new man of the c60s in russia i don't know what the c is supposed to be here another seems like another maybe kind of a typo um Simple-minded materialists and determinists who seriously thought, like D. Pisarev, to find the salvation of mankind in the dissection of the frog or thought that they had proved the non-existence of the human soul by failing to find it in the course of an autopsy. It's like one of those things where like they would, I think they quite literally would do an autopsy and they would weigh someone just before they died and they would weigh them right after they died and see if there was a difference and they'd say that was the weight of the soul. So that would be, this would be like, this would be realism. Um... 
Uh, one is reminded of the Soviet nihilists, the new men of our own 60s who failed to find God in outer space. This nihilist is the man who respects nothing, bows before no authority, accepts, so he thinks, nothing on faith, judges all in the light of a science taken as absolute and exclusive truth, rejects all idealism and abstraction in favor of the concrete and the factual. I'm thinking of like Sam Harris, kind of. He is the believer, in a word, in the nothing but, in the reduction of everything men have considered higher, the things of the mind and spirit, to the lower or basic matter, sensation, the physical. As opposed to liberal vagueness, the realist worldview seems perfectly clear and straightforward. In place of agnosticism or an evasive deism, there is open atheism. In place of vague higher values, naked materialism and self-interest. All is clarity in the realist universe, except what is most important and most requires clarity. It's beginning and end. Where the liberal is vague about ultimate things, the realist is childishly naive. They simply do not exist for him. Nothing exists but what is most obvious. Such realism, of course, is a self-contradiction, whether it takes the form of a naturalism that tries to establish an absolute materialism and determinism, or a positivism that purports to deny the absolute altogether, or the doctrinaire agnosticism that so readily discourses on the unknowability of ultimate reality. We have already discussed this problem in section one of this chapter. But argument, of course, is purely academic in view of the fact that realism, a logical self-contradiction, is not properly treated as a philosophy at all. It is the naive, undisciplined thought of the unreflective practical man who, in our age of oversimplification, thinks to impose his single-minded standards and ideas upon the entire world. Or, on a slightly different level, the equally naive thought of the scientist, bound to the obvious by the requirements of his specialty, when he illegitimately attempts to extend scientific criteria beyond their proper bounds. In the latter sense, it is, to adopt a useful distinction, scientism, as opposed to legitimate science. For it must be understood that our remarks here are not directed against science itself, but against the improper exploitation of its standards and methods that is so common today. It's a little wild that he was writing this like 60 years ago. And he's identifying this stuff here that's become just, it's almost, it, it, it's almost um, trite to identify some of this stuff now because it's so prevalent. Um, there was something up here that I was going to, um, oh, this here where it's not properly treated as a philosophy at all. It's the naive, undisciplined thought of the unreflective, practical man who, in our age of oversimplification, thinks to impose his simple-minded standards and ideas upon the entire world. It's kind of like, <coughs> oh boy, there's a cough. It's kind of like the factory settings that a lot of people have. A lot of people just have this kind of basic factory settings that they don't really think about where they came from, where they're going. It's just kind of what's immediately in front of them and just kind of deal with the day as it comes and, and not really being tapped into something um, bigger than that. Is it correct to call such a philosophy nihilism? More precisely, is it nihilism in the sense in which we have defined that term? The truth is, in the highest sense, knowledge of the beginning and end of things, of the dimension of the absolute. And if nihilism is the doctrine that there is no such truth, then it is clear that those who take scientific knowledge for the only truth and deny what lies above it are nihilists in the exact sense of this term. Let me, let me parse that out a little bit here. So if we take premise one, that truth is in the highest sense, knowledge of the beginning and end of things, of the dimension of the absolute, and if nihilism is the doctrine that there is no such truth, then those who take scientific knowledge for the only truth and deny what lies, lies above it are necessarily nihilists. 
worship of the fact is by no means the love of truth. I think that's worship of the fact, like the idea of a fact. Worship of the fact is by no means the love of truth. It is, as we have already suggested, it's parody. It is the presumption of the fragment to replace the whole. It is the proud attempt to build a Tower of Babel, a collection of thoughts, to reach to the heights of truth and wisdom from below. But truth is only attained by bowing down and accepting what is received from above. All the pretended humility of realist scholars and scientists, these men of little faith, cannot conceal the pride of their collective usurpation of the throne of God. They, in their smallness, think their painstaking research of more weight than divine revelation. For such men, too, there is no truth. And of them, we may say what St. Basil the Great said of pagan Greek scientists, quote, their terrible condemnation will be the greater for all this worldly wisdom, since, seeing so clearly into vain sciences, they have willfully shut their eyes to the knowledge of the truth. Close quote. Up to this point, however, we have failed properly to distinguish the second stage of nihilism from its first. Most liberals, too, accept science as exclusive truth. Wherein does the realist differ from them? The difference is not so much one of doctrine. Realism is, in a sense, merely disillusioned and systematized liberalism as one of emphasis and motivation. There's a kind of a little nugget there that realism, if you if you're trying to think of kind of wrap your mind around, around what realism is, in a sense, it's just disillusioned and systematized liberalism. So it's kind of like liberalism without any sort of like life or vitality, which kind of gives you a clue as to what the next stage is going to be. The liberal is indifferent to absolute truth, an attitude resulting from excessive attachment to this world. With the realist, on the other hand, indifference to truth becomes hostility, and mere attachment to the world becomes fanatical devotion to it. Those extreme consequences must have a more acute cause. The realist himself would say that this cause is the love of truth itself, which forbids belief in a higher truth that is no more than fantasy. Nietzsche, in fact, while believing this, saw in it a Christian quality that had turned against Christianity. Quote, the sense of truth, highly developed through Christianity, ultimately revolts against the falsehood and fictitiousness of all Christian interpretations of the world and its history. Close quote. So in other words, Nietzsche is saying that um, Christianity, um, kind of as a matter of course, very highly developed a sense of truth that then was turned back on Christianity and and, and revolted, as he said, against the falsehood and fictitiousness of Christian interpretations of the world. Understood in proper context, there is an insight, though partial and distorted, in these words. Nietzsche, most immediately, was rebelling against a Christianity that had been considerably diluted by liberal humanism. He's not re rebelling against orthodoxy. He's rebelling against, like, German Protestantism. Um... Uh, Nietzsche most immediately was rebelling against a Christianity that had been considerably diluted by liberal humanism, a Christianity in which uncompromising love of and loyalty to absolute truth were rare, if not entirely absent. A Christianity which had become no more than a moral idealism tinged with aesthetic sentiment. The Russian nihilists, similarly, were in revolt against the Roman romantic idealism of superfluous men who dwelled in a nebulous realm of fantasy and escape divorced from any kind of reality, spiritual or worldly. Christian truth is as remote from such pseudo-spirituality as is nihilist realism. Both Christian and realist are possessed of a love of truth, a will not to be deceived, a passion for getting to the root of things and finding their ultimate cause. 
Both reject as unsatisfying any argument that does not refer to some absolute that itself needs no justification. Both are the passionate enemies of the frivolity of a liberalism that refuses to take ultimate things seriously and will not see human life as the solemn undertaking that it is. It is precisely this love of truth that will frustrate the attempt of liberals to preserve ideas and institutions in which they do not fully believe and which have no foundation in absolute truth. What is truth? To the person for whom this is a vital burning question, the compromise of liberalism and humanism becomes impossible. He who once and with his whole being has asked this question can never again be satisfied with what the world is content to take in place of truth. But it is not enough to ask this question. One must find the answer, or the last state of the seeker will be worse than the first. The Christian has found that the only the Christian has found the only answer in God and his son. The realist, out of contact with Christian life and the truth that animates it, asks the question in a spiritual vacuum and is content to accept the first answer he finds. Mistaking Christianity for another form of idealism, he rejects it and becomes a fanatical devotee of the only reality that is obvious to the spiritually blind, this world. That's a, that's a bar right there. Mistaking Christianity for another form of idealism, he rejects it and becomes a fanatical devotee of the only reality that is obvious to the spiritually blind, this world. That's If that doesn't describe Sam Harris, man. Now, much as it is possible to admire the earnestness of the devoted materialist and atheist, not even the greatest charity can induce us to recognize in him any longer the love of truth, which perhaps first inspired him. He is the victim, rather, of a love of truth that has gone astray, become a disease, and ended in its own negation. The motives of the realist are, in fact, not pure. He claims to know what, by his own theory of knowledge, cannot be known. We have seen that the denial of absolute truth is itself an absolute. And if he does so, it is because he has an ulterior motive, because he places some otherworldly value above truth. The ruthless realist and truth seeker Nietzsche, seduced by a vision of the Superman, ends in the evocation of the will to untruth and the will to power. Marxist realism, for the sake of a revolutionary millennium, issues in a reign of lies and deception such as the world has never seen. The love of truth, frustrated of its proper object, is prostituted to an irrational cause and becomes a principle of subversion and destruction. It becomes the enemy of the truth it has failed to attain, of every kind of order founded wholly or partially upon the truth, and, in the end, of itself. I'm going to read that sentence one more time. The love of truth, frustrated of its proper object, so if you have a love of truth, but you aren't directing that love of truth at Christ, then that love of truth will ultimately be prostituted to an irrational cause, and it will become a principle of subversion and destruction. It becomes the enemy of the truth it has failed to attain, of every kind of order founded wholly or partially upon that truth, and in the end, it becomes the enemy of itself. It becomes, in fact, a perfect parody of the Christian love of truth. Where the Christian asks the ultimate meaning of everything and is not content until he sees that it is founded on God and his will, the realist likewise questions everything, but only to be able to abolish all suggestion of or aspiration to anything higher, and to reduce and simplify it into the terms of the most obvious and basic explanation. Where the Christian sees God in everything, the realist sees only race, or sex, or the mode of production. If the realist therefore shares in common with the Christian a single-mindedness and earnestness that is totally foreign to the liberal mentality, it is only the better to join in the liberal's attack on Christian truth, 
and to carry out that attack to its conclusion, the total abolition of Christian truth. What began half-heartedly in liberalism has gathered momentum in realism and now presses to its catastrophic end. Nietzsche foresaw in our century the triumph of nihilism. Jacob Burkhardt, that disillusioned liberal, saw in it the advent of an age of dictators who would be mm, terrible simplifiers in French. It'd be like, terrible simplificateur. In Lenin and Stalin, Hitler and Mussolini, with their radically simple solutions for the most complex of problems, the fulfillment of this prediction in the political realm has been well begun. More profoundly, nihilist simplification may be seen in the universal prestige today accorded the lowest order of knowledge, the scientific, as well as the simplistic ideas of men like Marx, Freud, and Darwin, which underlie virtually the whole of contemporary thought and life. That's, <laughs> I, I love Father Seraphim's um, uh, the the little barbs that he that he has in here like the simplistic ideas of men like Marx, Freud, and Darwin. <laughs> he just casually says that. It's great. Let me get another drink here real quick. Yes. Thank you, Amy. My French is absolutely dreadful. We say life, for it is important in the private, previous sentence he'd said, which underlie the, the virtually the whole of contemporary thought and life. We say life, for it is important to see that the nihilist history of our century has not been something imposed from without or above, or at least has not been predominantly this. It has rather presupposed and drawn its nourishment from a nihilist soil that has long been preparing in the hearts of the people. It is precisely from the nihilism of the commonplace, from the everyday nihilism revealed in the life and thought and aspiration of the people, that all the terrible events of our century have sprung. The worldview of Hitler is very instructive in this regard, for in him, the most extreme and monstrous nihilism rested upon the foundation of a quite unexceptional and even typical realism. He shared the common faith in science, progress, and enlightenment, though not, of course, in democracy, together with a practical materialism that scorned all theology, metaphysics, and any thought or action concerned with any other world than the here and now, priding himself on the fact that he had the gift of reducing all problems to their simplest foundations. He had a crude worship of efficiency and utility that freely tolerated birth control, laughed at the institution of marriage as a mere legalization of a sexual impulse that should be free, welcomed sterilization of the unfit, despised unproductive elements such as monks, saw nothing in the cremation of the dead but a practical question, and did not even hesitate to put the ashes or the skin and fat of the dead to productive use. He possessed the quasi-anarchist distrust of sacred and venerable institutions, and particularly the church, with its superstitions and all of its outmoded laws and ceremonies. We have already had occasion to note his abhorrence of the institution of monarchy, a determining factor in his refusal to assume the imperial tide. He had a naive trust in the natural mom, the healthy animal who scorns the Christian virtues, virginity in particular, that impede the natural functioning of the body. He took a simple-minded delight in modern conveniences and machines, and especially in the automobile in the sense of speed and freedom it affords. There is very little of this crude Weltanschauung that is not shared to some degree by the multitudes today, especially among the young, who feel themselves enlightened and liberated. Very little that is not typically modern. And it is precisely upon the basis of a realism such as this, in which there is no more room for the, complica the, the complicated Christian view of life and the supremely important realities of the spiritual world, that the grossest superstitions and the most blatant credulity can thrive. 
well-meaning men think to forestall the appearance of another Hitler by an attack upon irrationality and a defense of reason, science, and common sense. But outside of the context of Christian truth, these values, constituting a realism of their own, are a preparation for, and not a defense against, the advent of another terrible simplifier. The most effective contemporary simplifiers are those who hold power in the Soviet Union, who have made a religion of science and common sense. And anyone who looks to those most superstitious men for the defense of any value worth defending is sorely deceived. Realism unquestionably belongs to the spirit of the age, and all who feel themselves to be of that spirit have had to accommodate themselves to it. Thus, humanism, which in a more leisurely age had a more idealistic and liberal coloration, has itself found it necessary to change with the times and adopt a more realistic tone. The more naive have founded a humanistic religion that identifies itself with the cause of science and progress and has made into dogmas precisely the self-contradictions we've already examined. It is men like this who are capable of seeing in Marxism, too, a kind of humanism. But even in the most sophisticated of contemporary humanists, in the most urbane scholars and statesmen, the realist tone is unmistakable. It is revealed, for example, in the invasion by scientific methods and attitudes of the last strongholds of the humanities. No contemporary scholar in whatever field feels secure unless his work is to be the fullest possible degree scientific, which often means, of course, scientistic. Remember, again, this he's writing this 60 years ago. Now all of this stuff is, is kind of is very obvious, this dynamic he's describing. like the, the dynamic he's describing in the Soviet Union, who made a religion of science and common sense, that's the same spirit that moved its way across the, you know, one might identify the fact that it was not born in the Soviet Union. It was inculcated in the Soviet Union. It was exported to the Soviet Union. And then it was brought back home again. Um, but either way, it's the same phenomenon he's looking at. Uh, realism may be seen again in the stoical, worldly wise, and often cynical tone of all but the most naive or religious of contemporary humanists. Their imagined freedom from illusion has also been in large measure a disillusionment. They now know better than to believe in the higher truths that comforted their fathers. Humanism in short has come to terms with realism. And so it thinks with reality. In the passage from liberalism to realism, the humanist sees not only a disillusionment, but a process of maturing. The Orthodox Christian, of course, sees something quite different. If the function of liberalism was to obscure, with the smoke of tolerance and agnosticism, the higher truths concerning God and the spiritual life, the task of the realism we have been examining has been to annihilate those truths. In this second stage in the progress of the nihilist dialectic, heaven has been closed off from the gaze of men, and men have resolved never again to take their eyes off the earth, but to live henceforth in and for this world alone. This realist resolve is as present in a seemingly innocent logical positivism and scientific humanism as it is in the obviously satan satanic phenomena of Bolshevism and National Socialism. The consequences of this resolve are hidden from those who make it, for they involve the very reality to which realism is blind, the reality both above and below the narrow, narrow realist universe. We shall see how a closing off of heaven looses unexpected forces from below that make a nightmare of the nihilist dream of a new earth, and how the new man of realism will resemble less a mythological, fully developed, perfect humanity than a veritable subhumanity, such as never before been encountered in human experience. 
We must now explore the next step in the progress of the nihilism that leads to those ends. Vitalism. This is where you can see him hinting in this last second to last sentence here, uh, a nightmare of the nihilist dream of a new earth and how the new man of realism will resemble less a mythological fully developed perfect humanity than a veritable subhumanity such as never before been encountered in human experience. He's talking about transhumanism. He's not... It, transhumanism was was not even as completely fully developed back then as it is now, but that's the this is the phenomena that he's that he's driving at. He's identifying this sixty years ago that transhumanism was coming, that there was going to be a, a push for creating a fully developed perfect humanity, but it was an actuality going to wind up creating an like a a, a subhumanity of these people who are basically becoming drones. All right, let's continue. One more thought before we get going. Um, so you can see here that liberalism kind of sets up as ambivalent to Christian truth. More specifically, liberalism is ambivalent toward Christ. That sets the stage or, or paves the road for realism, which is explicitly hostile to Christian truth, that is, to Christ. That then, if you can kind of track the trajectory here, the natural next step is going to be if you've, if ambivalence has set the stage for hostility and annihilation, then what must come next? You must have a replacement of Christ. First, you were ambivalent to him, then you were hostile to him and annihilated him. Now you have to replace him with something. This is vitalism. Liberalism and realism have been leading men for a century and more down a false path whose end, if the path had not been deflected, would have been something like one of those reverse utopias of which we have now heard so much. A more terrible, brave new world, perhaps, an inhuman technological system wherein all worldly problems would be solved at the cost of the enslavement of men's souls. Against this utopia of rationalist planning, many protests have been raised in the name of the concrete and personal, of the unplanned and unsystematic needs of human nature that are at least as essential, even for a purely worldly happiness, as the more obvious material needs. A protest, above all, in the name of life, which, whatever it may mean, would clearly be stifled in the realist paradise. The realist paradise is just like completely devoid of and it's it's so ruthlessly materialistic that it's completely devoid of any um any life it's it's devoid of vitality it's cold harsh calculating um ruthlessly pragmatic so human beings are inherently aware of the fact that many of the things that we need are not that we need to live to survive are not material even if consciously we may not acknowledge that, we, we're aware of it. Things like freedom and love and trust and community. These are all things that we innately need. And so if you're trying to um, rationalistically, in a, in a capital R realist manner, plan out your society, treating human beings as little widgets, then you're eventually going to provoke a response. You're going to get some kind of a revolution that says we aren't just widgets. We have deeper meanings than just the materialist stuff. 
uh, two-bit podcast says, this is my favorite chapter. Marshall says, uh, the foresight this man had, it's the world we live in today. He was truly blessed to have seen this over 50 years ago. Okay. The chief intellectual impetus of the vitalist movement has been a reaction against the eclipse of higher realities in the realist simplification of the world. This granted, we must, on the other hand, acknowledge the absolute failure of vitalism on this level. Lacking sufficient foundation in or even awareness of Christian truth, those who have applied themselves to the correction of the radical defects of realism have generally invented remedies for them which have not been merely powerless, but positively harmful. Remedies which are actually symptoms of a more advanced stage of the disease they were intended to heal. So the people reacting to realism um, are, um, they, they, they see the realist simplification of the world as eclipsing higher realities that are important. So that's the, which is true to an extent, but because they don't have a foundation in Christian truth, they don't actually understand what those higher realities are. They're just grasping in the dark. And so the solutions that they've come up with to try to solve the problems that they see in realism and liberalism are not just not just to those solutions not actually solve those problems. They actually make them worse. So in, in reality, they're actually symptoms of the very problem itself. So the vitalist solutions are symptoms. They're not solutions to the realist errors. They're actually symptoms of the realist errors. They're like an immune response from the system, from the human human system, in response to what's being recognized as a um, an, an invader or, or contagion of some type. For just as realism, while reacting against the vagueness of liberalism, condemned itself to sterility by accepting the liberalist obs obscuration of higher truths, so too did vitalism undermine its own hopes by accepting as an essential presupposition the critique of absolute truth made by the realism it was attempting to combat. Okay, here's another one. Let me unpack this one. So you had liberalism, which was ambivalent to truth, to, to absolute truth. And it uh, paved the way for realism, which is explicitly hostile to absolute truth. Vitalism reacts to realism, but... They don't say, no, there is an absolute truth. They accept the premise that there is no absolute truth. And in so doing, they actually entrench the errors or they, they enshrined the errors that were made by the realists. However much the vitalist may yearn for the spiritual and mystical, he will never look to Christian truth for them, for that has been outmoded for him as surely as for the blindest realist. Typical of the vitalist attitude in this regard is the lament of W.B. Yeats in his autobiography over being deprived by Huxley and Tyndall, whom I, despot, whom I detested, of the simple-minded religion of my childhood. Close quote. Whatever psychological justification, justification such an attitude may have, it has nothing whatever to do with the truth of things, and the consequences have been nothing but harmful. Uh, da, 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 da. uh okay, I gotta figure out where I was. Okay, whatever psychological justification such an attitude may have, it has nothing whatever to do with the truth of things, and the consequences have been nothing but harmful. There is no form of vitalism that is not naturalistic. None whose entire program does not begin and end in this world, none whose approach to any other world is anything but a parody. 
The path of nihilism, let us note again, has been progressive. The errors of one of its stages are repeated and multiplied in its, in its next stage. There is no question then of finding in vitalism a return to Christian or any other truths. There is, however, inevitably some pretense among vitalists to do so. Many critics have noted the pseudo-religious character even of Marxism, though that epithet is though that epithet is applicable only to the misplaced fervor of its more enthusiastic devotees and not to its doctrine, which is too clearly anti-religious in character. In vitalism, the question of pseudo-religion becomes much more serious. Here, a quite understandable lament over the loss of spiritual values becomes father, on the one hand, to subjective fantasies and sometimes to actual Satanism, which the undiscriminating take as revelations of the spiritual world, and on the other hand, to a rootless eclecticism that draws ideas from every civilization and every age and finds a total arbitrary connection between these misunderstood fragments and its own debased conceptions. All right, let me let me go back through that one there. So um, a quite understandable lament over the loss of spiritual values. So the vitalist is, is lamenting the loss of spiritual values. And, um, but that lament turns into because they're not grounding this this approach in christian truth then they get on one hand basically just kind of loony people to the point of actual satanism and the the undiscriminating take that sa satanism as actual revelations of the spiritual world there's basically people who are like doing drugs and coming back with visions of the other worlds and that sort of thing um and then on the other hand, you get this perennialism, this rootless eclecticism, which draws ideas from every civilization and every age and finds a totally arbitrary connection between these misunderstood fragments and its own debased conceptions. So these people, he was actually he, a student of Gwinnon. He studied Gwinnon for quite a while, and that led him into traditionalism, which is ultimately what led him to orthodoxy. So he is very keenly aware of this perennialist uh, impulse which is very fashionable among the more um, kind of like esoteric or occult right wing now, um, which is that essentially uh, Christianity is kind of a an archetypal Western man religion um, that has some principles about it that are that are that are very good. So there's there's sort of a um, it's a little more kind of like the liberal ambivalence toward Christianity, except it's almost a little more. There's there's aspects of it that that they are willing to tolerate, but they want to incorporate it with um, aspects of Buddhism and 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 they they take all these different religions and they kind of want to pick and choose their little pieces of it because they believe that there's there's kind of this vague conception of a general truth that's sort of an accumulation of little truths out of all the different worldviews, all the different ideologies. If you pull them all together, they're all rooted somewhere in some kind of a truth. So all we have to do is just kind of grab bag everything and put it together and we can create our own truth. Pseudo-spirituality and pseudo-traditionalism, one or both, are integral elements of many vitalist systems. So the way you could look at this really is kind of, it's like um, Wiccans on one hand, like Wiccans and hippies on one hand, um, which the most modern versions of this might be kind of like the Aubrey Marcus types. Um, and then pseudo-traditionalism on the other hand would kind of range from i love the man but kind of range from graham hancock a little bit to um the uh, uh like bap this would be the same kind of the, the the same vein of what he's talking about here 
We must be cautious then in examining the claims of those who would restore a spiritual meaning to life, and especially of those who fancy themselves allies or adherents of Christianity. Spiritualist errors are far more dangerous than any mere materialism, and we shall in fact find in part three of this work that most of what passes for spirituality today is in fact a new spirituality, a cancer born of nihilism that attaches itself to healthy organisms to destroy them from within. This tactic is the precise opposite of the bold realist attack upon truth in the spiritual life. It is no less a nihilist tactic, but it is no less a nihilist tactic and a more advanced one. So where the the realist directly attacked truth and spiritual life, and where the liberal was ambivalent toward truth and spiritual life, the vitalist is a... <laughs> They're not going to like this. The vitalist is a subversive attack on truth and the spiritual life. Uh, Two-Bit says Hinduism is one of the main ones they try to smash into Christianity. I'm guessing it's the hierarchy structure in it that appeals and seems parallel. Yeah, that's right. Did I say, I meant Hinduism and I think I said Buddhism. Hinduism was the, was the one I was thinking of. Intellectually, then, vitalism presupposes a rejection of Christian truth together with a certain pseudo-spiritual pseudo pretension. Realizing this, however, we shall still be unprepared to understand the vitalist movement if we are unaware of the spiritual state of the men who have become its bearers. In liberalism and realism, the nihilist disease is still relatively superficial. It is still mainly a matter of philosophy and restricted to an intellectual elite. In vitalism, however... As already in Marxism, the most extreme manifestation of the realist mentality, the disease not only develops qualitatively, it also extends itself quantitatively. For the first time, the common people, too, begin to show signs of the nihilism that was formerly restricted to the few. You get a little bit of elite theory in here, where a lot of this stuff begins among the elites and then filters down to the common people. So the common people lag behind the elites because, I mean, this is just a, a, a fact of human life that um, those who generate the ideas guide those who receive those ideas from them. This fact is, of course, in perfect accord with the internal logic of nihilism, which aspires, like the Christianity it was called into ex existence to destroy, to universality. By the middle of the 19th century, perceptive thinkers were expressing apprehension at the prospect of the awakened multitudes, those who were to be exploited by the terrible simplifiers. And by the time of Nietzsche, the most powerful of vitalist prophets, the apprehension had deepened and become a certainty. Nietzsche could see that the death of God had begun to cast its first shadows over Europe. And though the event itself is far too great, too remote, too much beyond most people's power of apprehension for one to suppose that so much as the report of it could have reached them, Still, its advent was certain, and it was men like Nietzsche who were, quote, the firstlings and premature children of the coming century. The century, let us remember, of the triumph of nihilism. What's up, Silver Pie? Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I'm glad you're enjoying this. The Christian truth, which liberalism has undermined and realism attacked, is no mere philosophical truth, but the truth of life and salvation. And once there begins to gain ground among the multitudes who have been nourished by that truth, the conviction that it is no longer credible, the result will be no mere urbane skepticism like that 
with which a few liberals console themselves, but a spiritual catastrophe of enormous dimensions, one whose effect will make itself felt in every area of human life and thought. Thinkers like Nietzsche felt the presence of the first shadows of this catastrophe, and so were able to describe it in some detail and deduce certain of its consequences. But not until these shadows had begun to steal into the hearts of the multitudes could these consequences manifest themselves on a large scale. Toward the end of the 19th century, increasing numbers of quite ordinary men had begun that restless search, so much a part of our own contemporary scenes, to find a substitute for the God who was dead in their hearts. This restlessness has been the chief psychological impetus of vitalism. It is raw material, as it were, ready to be shaped after the pattern of the intellectual presuppositions we have just examined by craftsmen inspired by the latest current of the spirit of the age. We tend, perhaps, to think of this restlessness mainly in terms of its exploitation by nihilist demagogues, but it has been an important stimulant of vitalist art and religion also. And the presence of this component in most vitalist phenomena is the reason why they, as opposed to the seeming sanity of liberalism and realism, present symptoms not merely of intellectual deviation, but of spiritual and psychological disorientation as well. It will be well before passing on to a consideration of the more formal manifestations of vitalism in philosophy and art to take a closer look at some of the common manifestations of this inarticulate restlessness that underlies them. Is it as certain as we have implied that it is, after all, a nihilist characteristic? Many will object that its significance has often been exaggerated, that it is simply a new form of something that has always existed, and that it is a ridiculous pretension to dignify something so common by the exalted name of nihilism. There is, of course, some basis for such a judgment. Nonetheless, it can hardly be denied that the modern phenomenon differs in several important respects from any of its predecessors. It exists today for the first time in history on a scale so vast as to be almost universal. Its normal remedies, the remedies of common sense, seem to have no effect whatever upon it, and if anything, they seem to encourage it. And its course has exactly paralleled that of the extension of modern unbelief, so that if the, so that if it, so that if the one is not the cause of the other, they are both at least parallel manifestations of the one in the same process. These three points are so closely bound together that we shall not separate them in the following discussion, but examine them together. The fascist and national socialist regimes were the most skillful in exploiting popular restlessness and utilizing it for their own purposes. But it is the strange fact, strange to anyone who does not understand the character of the age, that this restlessness has not been quieted by the defeat of its principal exploiters, but has rather increased in intensity since then, and, strangest of all, especially in the countries most advanced in the democratic and liberal ideologies and most blessed with worldly prosperity, and in backward countries in direct proportion to their own progress toward these goals. Neither war nor liberal idealism nor prosperity can pacify it, nor Marxist idealism either, for Soviet prosperity has produced the same phenomenon. These remedies are ineffective, for the disease lies deeper than they can reach. Perhaps the most striking manifestation of the popular unrest has been in crime, and particularly in juvenile crime. Crime in most previous ages had been a localized phenomenon and had apparent and comprehensible causes in the human passions of greed, lust, envy, jealousy, and the like. Never has there been anything more than a faint prefiguration of the crime that has become typical of our own century. Crime for which the only name is one the avant-garde today is fond of using in another nihilist context. Absurd. A parent is murdered by a child, or a child by a parent. A total stranger is beaten or murdered, but not robbed, by an individual or a gang. Such gangs terrorize whole neighborhoods by their prowling or their senseless wars with each other. And to what purpose? 
It is a time of peace and prosperity. The criminals are as likely to be from the best as from the worst elements of society. There is no practical reason for their conduct, and there is often complete disregard for precautions or consequences. When questioned, those apprehended for such crimes explained their behavior in the same way. It was an impulse or an urge that drove them, or there was a sadistic pleasure in committing the crime, or there was some totally irrelevant pretext such as boredom, confusion, or resentment. In a word, they cannot explain their behavior at all. There is no readily comprehensible motive for it, and in consequence, and this is perhaps the most consistent and striking feature of such crimes, there is no remorse. There are, of course, other less violent forms of the popular unrest. There is the passion for movement and speed expressed especially in the veritable cult of the automobile. We have already noted this passion, passion in Hitler. The universal appeal of television and cinema, whose most frequent function is to provide a few hours of escape from reality by both their eclectic and exciting subject matter and by the hypnotic effect of the media themselves. The increasingly primitive and savage character of popular music and of the perhaps more authentic expression of the contemporary soul, jazz, the cult of physical prowess and sport, and the morbid worship of youth of which it is a part. The prevalence and general permissiveness towards sexual promiscuity, condoned by many supposedly responsible elders as indicative of the frankness of contemporary youth, and as being merely another form of the open experimental attitude so much encouraged in the arts and sciences. The disrespect for authority fostered by a popular attitude that sees no values but the immediate and dynamic and leads the most idealistic of youth into demonstrations against repressive laws and institutions. In such phenomena, activity is clearly an escape. An escape from boredom, from boredom, from meaninglessness, and most profoundly, from the emptiness that takes possession of the heart that has abandoned God. Revealed truth, that has abandoned God, revealed truth, and the morality and conscience dependent upon that truth. In the more complex manifestations of the vitalist impulse to which we now turn, the same psychology is at work. We shall do no more than suggest the wealth of these manifestations, for we shall examine most of them in some detail later in their role as forms of the new spirituality. In politics, the most successful forms of vitalism have been Mussolini's cult of activism and violence and Hitler's darker cult of blood and soil. The nature of these is too, too familiar to the present generation to need further comment in this context. It is perhaps not so obvious today, however, when the political barometer so clearly points to the left. Remember, he wrote this in the 60s. When the political barometer so clearly points to the left, just how profound was the appeal of these movements when they appeared some 40 years ago? So he's identifying that, that Mussolini and Hitler, he's identifying them properly as right wing. But he's also pointing out that 40 years earlier, which is all, it has been longer since he wrote this book than it was from Hitler and Mussolini to the time that he wrote this book. So Hitler and Mussolini were more memorable or were more recent in memory for Father Seraphim writing this book and the culture around him than the 60s are to us now. He was like, he was writing, let's see, 40 years. So it would have been like the 80s. So to him, Hitler and Mussolini would be like the 80s now, like the fall of communism. Um, and he he's identifying how popular and, and compelling and appealing they were, even though the society at the point that he's writing this now finds them repellent and abhorrent and awful and terrible and you know all the, the, all the whole nine yards. 
Quite apart from the uprooted masses, who were the principal object of their exploitation, a not inconsiderable section of the intellectual and cultural avant-garde also became enthusiastic sympathizers of the nihilist demagogues, at least for a while. If few among the sophisticated took either Nazism or fascism as a new religion, some at least welcomed one or the other of them as a salutary antidote to the democracy, science, and progress, that is, the liberalism and realism, that seemed to promise a future no sensitive man could envision without apprehension. Their dynamism, vitality, and pseudo-traditionalism seemed deceptively refreshing to many who were breathing the stifling intellectual atmosphere of the time. Modern art has held a similar appeal, and its similar reaction against lifeless academic realism has likewise led into strange fields. New and exotic sources and influences have been found in the art of Africa, the Orient, the South Seas, of prehistoric man, children, and madmen, in spiritism and, and, and occultism. Continual experimentation has been the rule, a constant search for new forms and techniques. Inspiration has been found above all in the savage, the primitive, and the spontaneous. Like the futurists in their manifesto, though futurism itself can hardly be taken seriously as art, the most typical modern artists have exalted in their works every kind of originality, boldness, extreme violence, and they have likewise believed that our hands are free and pure to start everything afresh. It's wild that that he identifies these things this way now because like reading back on it, it's weird to imagine living in a world where that phenomena would be recognized as something new and not typical because now this is like the default reality of the world around us and has been for, I mean, 20 plus years, at least this um, kind of structureless unhinged, just, kind of anything goes approach to art has been the the real force of the society for almost as far back as I can remember. It's clear. It's clearly beginning to accelerate and getting more and more absurd and insane and unhinged, but to, to live in a society where you would be able to kind of identify that, like, um, you, you know, this constant search for new, it's like some of the stuff that he describes here almost doesn't seem that objectionable to my sensibilities, which shows me just how far beyond, beyond where he was, I've moved to where you're going back further than him is even more removed from where I am now. It's just, it's kind of, it's wild to think about the way that, that human cultures evolve this way. The artist, according to the vitalist myth is a creator, a genius. He is inspired. In his art, realism is transformed by vision. It is a sign and a prophecy of a spiritual awakening. The artist, in short, is a magician in his own realm, in precisely the same way Hitler was in politics. And in both, it is not truth, but subjective feeling that reigns. In religion, or to speak more precisely, pseudo-religion, the restless experimentation characteristic of vitalism has manifested itself in even more varied forms than it has in the schools of modern art. There are, for example, the sects whose deity is a vague, eminent force. These are the varieties of new thought and positive thinking, whose concern is to harness and utilize this force as if it were a kind of electricity. Closely related to these are occultism and spiritism, as well as certain spurious forms of Eastern wisdom, which abandon all pretense of concern with God explicitly to invoke more immediate powers and presences. Um... One other thing about uh, Father Seraphim I forgot to mention earlier is that he was a um, he studied under Alan Watts, um, 
the the British Eastern mystic kind of guy. Um, so he's very intimately familiar with this world he's describing. Religious vitalism appears also in the widespread cult of awareness and realization. In a fairly restrained form, this is present in the devotees of modern art and the creative act and vision that inspire this art. The indiscriminate quest for enlightenment, as in those under the influence of Zen Buddhism, is a more extreme form of this cult. And the supposed religious experience stimulated by various drugs is perhaps its reductio ad absurdum. Again, there is the attempt to fabricate a pseudo-pagan cult of nature, and especially of its most primary and basic elements, the earth, the body, sex. Nietzsche's Zarathustra is a powerful prophet of this cult, and it is the central theme of D.H. Lawrence and other novelists and poets of this century. And there is the attempt in most kinds of existentialism and personalism to turn religion into no more than a personal encounter with other men, and sometimes with a vaguely conceived god or in pathological atheistic existentialism to make a religion of rebellion and frenzied self-worship. All of these vitalist manifestations of the religious impulse share in common a hostility to any stable or unchanging doctrine or institution and a paramount concern with and pursuit of the immediate values of life, vitality, experience, awareness, or ecstasy. We have delineated the most striking features of vitalism and given some suggestion of its extent, but we have yet to define the term itself and expose its nihilist character. Liberalism, as we have seen, undermined truth by indifference to it, retaining, however, the prestige of its name, and realism attacked it in the name of a lesser partial truth. Vitalism, as opposed to both of these, has no relation to truth whatever. It simply devotes its whole concern to something of an entirely different order. The falseness of an opinion, said Nietzsche, is not for us any objection to it. The question is, how far an opinion is life-furthering or life-preserving? When such pragmatism begins, nihilism passes into the vitalist stage, which may be defined as the elimination of truth as the criterion of human action and the substitution of a new standard, the life-giving, the vital. It is the final divorce of life from truth. Vitalism is a more advanced kind of realism, sharing the latter's narrow view of reality and its concern to reduce everything higher to the lowest possible terms. Vitalism carries the realist intention one step further. Where realism tries to establish an absolute truth from below, vitalism expresses the failure of this project in the face of the more realistic awareness that there is no absolute here below, that the only unchanging principle in this world is change itself. Realism reduces the supernatural to the natural, the revealed to the rational, truth to objectivity. Vitalism goes further and reduces everything to subjective experience and sensation. In other words, up here, vitalism tries to out-realism realism. Vitalism sees realism as too idealistic. It tries, it, it's doing to realism what realism did to liberalism. Real, realism told liberalism, oh, you're too, you know, head in, the, head in the clouds, pie in the sky. You're not realistic. You're not, you're not grounded enough. You need to be cold, rational, grounded. And then vitalism says to realism, you're delusional. You're out of your mind. Human beings are not rational widgets. In fact, everything is is, you know, all that matters is the spiritual, is the experiential. That's all that matters. The cold, rational stuff, we, we don't need to worry about that. The, the, 
the the factualness of something isn't as important as the usefulness of it. The usefulness is what's real. The truthfulness is not. So it becomes um, where liberalism is ambivalent to truth and realism is hostile to truth. Vitalism sees itself as transcending truth. So this is man making himself God. The world that seemed so solid, the truth that seemed so secure to the realist, dissolve in the vitalist view of things. The mind has no more place to rest. Everything is swallowed up in movement and action. The logic of unbelief leads inexorably to the abyss. He who will not return to the truth must follow error to its end. So does humanism, too, after having contracted the realist infection, succumb to the vitalist germ? Of this fact, there is no better indication than the dynamic standards that have come to occupy an increasingly large place in formal criticism of art and literature, and even in discussions of religion, philosophy, and science. Yeah, Tubit says narratives beat facts every time. Everything is meta narratives. Uh, there are no qualities more prized in any of these fields today than those of being original, experimental, or exciting. The question of truth, if, if it is raised at all, is more and more forced into the background and replaced by subjective criteria, integrity, authenticity, individuality. Such an approach is an open invitation to obscurantism, not to mention charlatanry. And if the latter may be dismissed as a contempt, as a temptation for the vitalist that has not become the rule, it is by no means possible to ignore the increasingly blatant obscurantism, obscurantism, which the vitalist temperament tolerates and even encourages. So um, he's saying there's it's it's an open invitation to obscurantism, not to mention charlatanry, where you can you can go from just being like super open-minded to where now you're using open-mindedness as a weapon to actually intentionally abolish things like discipline and standards under the guise of, Oh, we're just being open-minded. That's what he's meaning by charlatanry. And he's seeing, he's saying your response to this might be, well, that's just a temptation for the vitalist, but it's not actually a core part of what it is to be a vitalist. He's like, well, it's getting pretty hard to ignore how increasingly blatant this world of no standards thing is becoming to where it's getting a little absurd, you know, to pardon the pun, you know, you can, there comes a point where you can't just plead ignorance. There obviously has to be some sort of malevolent intent that's taking advantage of this reality. It comes, it becomes ever more difficult in the contemporary intellectual climate to engage in rational discussion with vitalist apologists. If one, for example, inquires into the meaning of a contemporary work of art, he will be told that it has no meaning, that it is pure art and can only be felt, and that if the critic does not feel it properly, he has no right to comment on it. The attempt to introduce any standard of, standard of criticism, even of the most elementary and technical sort, is countered by the claim that old standards cannot be applied to the new art, that they are static, dogmatic, or simply out of date, and that art today cannot can be judged only in terms of its success and fulfilling its own unique intentions. If the critic sees a morbid or inhuman intent behind a work of art, the apology is that it is an accurate reflection of the spirit of the age, and it is implied that a man is naive if he believes that art should be more than that. The latter argument is, of course, the favorite one of every avant-garde today, whether literary, philosophical, or religious. For men weary of truth, it is enough that a thing is, and that it is new, 
and exciting. There's a lot of a lot of uh, um, uh, get off my lawn kind of uh, energy here to to Father Seraphim, um, but it's very true. And I mean, you, yeah, this this stuff should feel. Um, it's almost like the details of the, the the observations themselves are 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 so obvious to us today as to seem trite. Um, but the way he's packaging it and the the way he's tying these together and showing this trajectory, that's what's really, I think, profound about this book. And the fact that he was able to identify this um this pattern and this trend 60 years ago, and that it still holds true today and it's continued and he's become more and more right as time has gone by. I think that that's very um, uh, which is very, is very profound. Tubit says, blessed Seraphim Rose is demonstrating here the tension between the desire for truth and the desire for what we want the truth to be. The nihilist thinks these two things are the same. Yeah. This is the, 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 um, worship of the human will is, is what the, what vitalism is. It's really, um, you know, you have the, the Nietzschean will to power, at, at root, though, what this is, is the worship of the individual, the explicit um, ex- where where realism, um, maybe realism dethroned God, but it didn't spit in his face. And vitalism is spitting in his face, not only saying you've been dethroned, but you've been dethroned and it's a good thing. They're really leaning into it, so to speak. There are perhaps understandable reactions to the overly literary and utilitarian approach of liberalism and realism to realms like art and religion, which use a language quite unlike the prosaic language of science and business. To criticize them effectively, surely one must understand their language and know what it is they're trying to say. But what is equally clear is that they are trying to say something. Everything man does has a meaning, and every serious artist and thinker is trying to communicate something in his work. If it be proclaimed there is no meaning, or that there is only the desire to express the spirit of the age, or that there is no desire to communicate at all, why, these two are meanings, and very ominous ones, which the competent critic will surely notice. Unfortunately, but very significantly, the task of criticism today has been virtually identified with that of apology. The role of the critic is generally seen to be no more than that of explaining for the uninstructed multitudes the latest inspiration of the creative genius. Thus, passive receptivity takes the place of active intelligence. And success, the success of the genius in expressing his intention, no matter what the nature of that intention, replaces excellence. By the new standards, Hitler too was successful until the spirit of the age proved him wrong. And the avant-garde and its humanists fellow travelers have no argument whatever against Bolshevism today, unless it be that unlike National Socialism, which was expressionistic and exciting, it is simply prosaic and realistic. But perhaps most revealing of the infection of humanism by by vitalism is the strange axiom, romantic and skeptical at the same time, that the love of truth is never ending because it can never be fulfilled, that the whole of life is a constant search for something there is no hope of finding, a constant movement that never can nor should know a place of rest. The sophisticated humanist can be very eloquent in describing this, the new first principle of scholarly and scientific research, as an acknowledgement of the provisional nature of all knowledge as a reflection of the never-satisfied, ever-curious human mind, or as part of the mysterious process of evolution or progress. But the significance of the attitude is dear. It's probably supposed to be clear. The significance of the attitude is clear. It is the last attempt of the unbeliever to hide his abandonment of truth behind a cloud of noble rhetoric, 
And more positively, it is at the same time the exaltation of petty curiosity to the place once occupied by the genuine love of truth. So it's like the people who are who are, are like, no, actually, I care about the truth so much that I'm not going to falsely identify it. I'm going to say that the, the, the point is like the joy is in the journey. We aren't supposed, there's not supposed to be a destination. We're not supposed to actually ever get there. The, the joy is in the discovery and just being constantly curious and constantly looking for new things. There's, there's a truth in there, but that is not the truth. The truth is not that there is no destination. And when you take this, uh, this kind of cloudy, like the, it's the, the, the myth of progress, the only way you can have a perpetual myth of progress is by ensuring that there's no destination. Because if there's a destination, then there's something to measure that progress by. But if the goal is progress, then you don't want a destination. You have to eliminate the destination in order to get people to buy into the myth of eternal progress. And so then in that case, what does he say here? That uh, it's the exaltation of petty curiosity to the place one's occupied with a genuine love of truth. There's a place for petty curiosity, but not in the place of the love of truth. Now, it is quite true to say that curiosity, exactly like its analog, lust, never ends and is never satisfied. But man was made for something more than this. He was made to rise above curiosity and lust, to love, and through love, to the attainment of truth. This is an elementary truth of human nature, and it requires perhaps a certain simplicity to grasp it. The intellectual trifling of contemporary humanism is as far from such simplicity as it is from truth. In other words, contemporary humanism overcomplifies, overcomplifies, overcomplexifies things. That the the complexity is like a Rube Goldberg machine that is where the the um, the complexity is the purpose because it obscures the ultimate intellectual bankrupt bankruptcy of it all. Tubit says this just hit me: the desire to go to space or Mars or the Moon is the desire to escape the cross. Ooh, you need to do an episode on unpacking that. Because I understand directionally where you're going with it, but I would be very interested to know how your brain got to that. That's a very interesting thought. Hmm. You're going to be thinking about that one for a while. I, I demand that you do an episode unpacking that idea, even if it's short. The appeal of vitalism is, as we've already suggested, quite understandable psychologically. Only the dullest and least perceptive of men can remain satisfied for long with the dead faith of liberalism and realism. <laughs> there's, there's another one of, uh, if, like, he doesn't throw punches, he sticks daggers in your ribs. <laughs> Only the dullest and least perceptive of men can remain satisfied for long with the dead faith of liberalism and realism. <laughs> Extreme elements. Okay, this doesn't make sense. There's a typo here. What is this supposed to say? Extreme elements first. Okay. Um, all right, I, I follow what he's saying. So only the dullest and least perceptive of men can remain satisfied for long with the dead faith of liberalism and realism. 
extreme elements first, artists, revolutionaries, the uprooted multitudes, and then one by one, the humanist guardians of civilization, and eventually even the most respectable and conservative elements of society, become possessed of an inner disquiet that leads them into the pursuit of something new and exciting. No one knows exactly what. So it starts with, with uh, um, be, because liberalism and realism are so dead and, and dull that eventually it starts with the extreme people. This, the change and revolution really begins at the fringes. But eventually that becomes contagious and it gets all the way into the most conservative and respectable center cores of the society. They get this this inner kind of restlessness, this desire, this recognition for wanting something more. And it turns into this pursuit of what's new and exciting with no clear goal. Nihilist prophets, at first generally scorned, come into fashion as men come to share their unrest and forebodings. They are gradually incorporated into the humanist pantheon and are looked to for insights and revelations that will take men out of the barren desert into which realism has led them. Tubit says, I'll touch on it tomorrow, but we can delve on the Kingpill Discord that everybody should join up to if they haven't already. Yes, if you've seen this nifty little little uh, um, uh, ticker going along on the bottom here, uh, there's, a, there's a link there, subscribestar.com slash kingpill. You can join the, the Kingpill Discord. And after I go, um, after I finish up here, we're, I think we're getting pretty close to the end. After I finish up, then later this evening, I'm going to do a, a, a voice chat in the Discord. So if you have any questions or you just want to talk or BS, there's a good group of guys in there. Um, so I'll do a voice chat. I'll be in there for, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes or something like that um, after I get Eastwood put down to bed. So um, yeah, I should I should clarify that so my my wife doesn't uh, um, doesn't hurt me. Um, <laughs> after I assist my wife in putting Eastwood to bed. Um, Eastwood is a handful. He's a beautiful beloved little boy who is an absolute handful and my wife is a pure saint for her patience and dedication to him and i do not want to to um give her short shrift on that uh, okay beneath the trivial sensationalism and eclecticism that characterize the contemporary trend to mysticism and spiritual values lies a deep hunger for something more substantial than liberalism and realism have provided or can provide a hunger that the varieties of vitalism can only tease but never satisfy. Men have rejected the Son of God who, even now, desires to dwell in men and bring them salvation. And finding intolerable the vacuum this rejection has left in their hearts, they run to madmen and magicians, to false prophets and religious sophists for a word of life. But this word so readily given itself turns to dust in their mouths when they try to repeat it. Realism, in its rage for truth, destroys the truth. In the same way, vitalism in its very quest for life smells of death. The vitalism of the last hundred years has been an unmistakable symptom of world weariness, and its prophets, even more clearly than any of the philosophers of the dead liberalism and realism they attacked, have been a manifestation of the end of Christian Europe. Vitalism is the product, not of the freshness and life and immediacy, immediacy its followers so desperately seek, precisely because they lack them, but of the corruption and unbelief that are but the last phase of the dying civilization they hate. One need be no partisan of the liberalism and realism against which vitalism reacted to see that it has overreacted, that its antidote to an undeniable disease is itself a more potent injection of the same nihilist germ that caused the disease. Beyond vitalism, there can be only one more definitive stage through which nihilism may pass. The nihilism 
of destruction. All right. So we got through realism and vitalism. Now we've got the nihilism of destruction, and then we'll continue from there. The nihilism of destruction is um, quite a bit shorter. And then the next section goes into the theology and spirit of nihilism as he starts digging into it a little more um, in depth. So uh, let's see here. Next time, we'll probably get through the nihilism of destruction and then the first section of the next half. And we'll probably be able to get through the second section as well. Um, so I uh, hope you guys are enjoying this. Um, do me a favor for the sake of the algorithm. Um, I've been out of the game for a while here, and so I've kind of fallen out of the algorithm. Uh, I think videos don't get recommended the same. Um, so if you would, like the show and leave me a comment on it. I don't care what you say. Um, you can tell me that I've got a funny-looking face. Just leave me a comment on the show and um, and like it. And I appreciate you guys that are here in the live chat. That also helps. Having a lot of activity in the live chat is great for um, the algorithm. It tells people that, um, or tells the algorithm that that the people are enjoying it, that this is content that people are interacting with. It's keeping them on the platform. And so they will, uh, uh, they'll recommend it to more people. And um, I'd like to get this stuff in front of more people. I think that um, orthodoxy is really kind of starting to make inroads into Western culture at just the right time. And I don't want to be an ortho bro. I don't want to be the guy who's going out and, and I mean, no offense to the people who go out and they debate and they get into all that stuff. Like I appreciate them. That's a thing for them that they want to do. There, there are the guys who are just really pretty gay who are just like, they've got like an anime profile on Twitter and um, they've got a little Orthodox cross and then they just go around and argue with people and, you know, try to dunk on people for telling them that they're Protestant and like this kind of, like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the meme of an ortho bro on Twitter um, or on YouTube, but I do want to talk about this stuff because this stuff is interesting to me. And I think it's, it's the most important truth that, that there is um, the truth of Christ. So um, I appreciate you guys listening up here. I listen, I appreciate you guys uh, um, sharing the show, liking, engaging, all that sort of stuff. And uh, we're going to get through um, the rest of this one, it looks like there'll probably be maybe three, maybe four more episodes, live reading episodes on this book. And then, uh, then I want to do, uh, Genesis or, uh, I can't remember the title of it. Um, uh, the Genesis creation and early man, I think is what it's called. Another one by father Seraphim Rose. That's very, very interesting. Um, so yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate you being here. Um, and uh, once again, later this evening, probably in an hour or so, I'm going to go um, hop in the, the Kingpill Discord and we'll do a voice chat and talk about whatever anybody's interested in. So um, if you go to subscribestar.com slash Kingpilled, uh, you can, you can uh, sign up and you can join the Discord and um, have a good time in there. So 